Bible reading for today is from Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. I said to myself, Come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers, and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor. And this was the reward for all my toil. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. Well, Australians like to think of ourselves as battlers. We do it pretty tough. Um, But the fact is we're doing better than okay. Uh, Every year, uh, a company called Credit Suisse, they've got a fancy building down there at Circular Quay, uh, they released their Global Wealth Report. Uh, And last year, uh, it came out looking a little like this. Uh, So on the left-hand column there, you see a mean wealth, and Switzerland tops that list, and Australia comes in at a mean number four. Uh, But Switzerland's results are actually skewed by the fact that they've got a very small number of ridiculously wealthy people. Um, If you look at the column on the right, which is median wealth, uh, that is the wealth of the person in the middle, we go to number one. And so roughly what that means is that the average Australian person is the wealthiest average person in the world. Now, you may not feel like that, uh, and of course everyone's situation is different, but in global terms, we're about as wealthy as they come. But are we any more content because of it? Are we any happier because of it? Any more satisfied with life? Most studies that get done find very little correlation between wealth and contentment. There is a correlation between absolute poverty and discontent, that is true. But in fact, as a nation becomes more prosperous, studies actually show an increase in things like rates of depression and even suicide. 
And that has certainly been true in Australia. Uh, this is uh, John Brogdon, former Liberal opposition leader, um, who's had his own well-known struggles with mental health and was the former chairman of Lifeline. Uh, and while he was the chairman of Lifeline, he observed this. He said, we're spending more than we ever have on suicide prevention, but the more we spend, the worse things seem to get. Clearly, we're not doing enough or doing it right. The tragedy is that suicide rates in Australia have been on a clear upward trajectory over the last decade. Ask any health professional and they will tell you we have a mental health crisis in our community. Um, I was shocked to learn that even last year, one in five young Australians experienced what could be described as a mental health episode. Now, to be clear, I do understand there's not a direct correlation between mental health and contentment. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Um, but I think it does point to the struggle that we have to find meaning and to find true satisfaction in life. The things that we seem to think will bring us fulfilment, the things that we seem to think will bring us contentment, don't seem to be doing the trick. If you think even back over the last 100 years of the kinds of progress that we've made, the kinds of achievements that we as a, as a culture, as a community, think back to perhaps someone who was living at the time just after World War I. Since that time, our ability to communicate, our ability to travel, our progress in science and in technology and in healthcare, in education, uh, and even, I think, our treatment of many people who you might describe as marginalised or from minorities, I think uh, we certainly make a greater effort, although we do it far from perfectly, to ensure people are treated more fairly and equitably. We are wealthier and better fed and more comfortable than any previous generation. And yet who would want to claim that as people, we are happier and more content than people from earlier generations? This is an ongoing human problem. Our struggle to find meaning and contentment in life. And of course, there's nothing new in any of this. Philosophers and religions have been trying to wrestle with this for thousands of years. We just read one of those struggles, one of those wrestles, just a moment ago. The writer of Ecclesiastes expresses this dilemma. He sought out and experienced every pleasure imaginable. Uh, he writes this. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the, treasures of, the treasure of kings and provinces. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. That was the experience of the great King Solomon, a man who literally had it all as far as anything could be measured. Wealth, power. Yet... He found it all fleeting, ultimately unsatisfying. This was his conclusion. When I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. They say there's nothing so effective at crushing your dreams as achieving them. 
King Solomon's experience was that pleasure is fleeting, ultimately unsatisfying. He was looking for what, I guess, all people are searching for, something more substantial, something that would last, something that ultimately would not disappoint or wane. So where do we find true contentment? Where can lasting joy be found? Well, we won't find it if we try and chase it. At best, I think you could say it's a byproduct of other things. And we certainly won't find it if we try and fill our lives with things that were never designed to fulfil that need. But is it even possible? Some people have suggested that the, the key to all of this is not to change our circumstances, but to change our attitude towards our circumstances. Maybe even abandon that search for contentment altogether. If you know anything about Buddhism, you'll know that it teaches that the source of suffering and the source of discontent in our lives is unfulfilled and unmet desires. And so the key to a blissful existence is a kind of detachment where you desire nothing. And if you desire nothing, you cannot suffer the pain of its absence or loss. Now, whether that is love or material things, that's why Buddhist monks live such austere lifestyles. It's the discipline required to learn to let go of fleshly desires so you can achieve a state of mind that's above pleasure or above pain. Greek philosophy has similar ideas within it. The Stoics recognise that things like wealth and power and family and material comfort, uh, they only ever lead to a momentary satisfaction that fades away. And so for them, the key was not to try and fulfil your desires, but to learn to master them, to change your attitude towards the world around you, your expectations of the world. And I think there's certainly wisdom in both of those ideas. Christianity, too, will talk about being content regardless of your circumstances. Uh, the Apostle Paul famously writes these words. Talking about himself, he says, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Now, Paul here is not suggesting that we deny the reality of our desires or to make them the problem. See, I think the issue with suppressing or denying our desires is that we inevitably lose those things which make life so rich, so wonderful, those things that make us human. Things like love and beauty, good food and friendships and intimacy. The life that remains after you've taken away desire is not a life that I think most people would think is worth living. Research does show that there is a correlation between our ex external circumstances and our satisfaction in life, in particular, loving relationships. And we all got a little taste of that during COVID, didn't we? When we were denied that normal interaction and connection with other people. I, look, I know the introverts out there thought this was fantastic. But for most people, most people, we didn't do very well 
in lockdown. We are creatures who need and thrive on relationship with others. And so to deny that, to suppress that, only increases our discontent. So what to do? How do we deal with this? Well, some of us try and deal with it through a kind of a cynicism and a a detachment where we only end up, I think, denying our humanity, end up hurting those around us. Some of us try and distract ourselves by just chasing after that next pleasure, acquiring and disposing of things and experiences like the consumers that we are. But like Solomon, we'll find that ultimately unsatisfying. We won't be able to shake that feeling of discontent. The great Christian thinker, Augustine, talked about this as a problem of disordered loves. He said, if you're someone who loves making money more than you love justice, well, then you're going to be someone who'll be quite happy to exploit other people in order to enrich yourself. You'll do that quite comfortably at the expense of someone else. He called that a disordered love. Let's say you love your career and the status that it brings more than you love spending time with your family well, you're going to end up doing damage to your family. It's a disordered love. So it's not that we shouldn't love things deeply. He's saying we we love the wrong things and in the wrong order. And in that way, we make a mess of life. But Augustine also said that it wasn't simply a matter of trying to get things in the right order. He said, ultimately, what we need to do is understand the source of all love. He famously said this, You have made us for yourself, speaking to God, you have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. The human heart is a restless thing and it cannot rest until it rests in God himself. Whether we acknowledge it or not, it is what we were created for that our hearts will always long to be in loving communion with the one who made us. And since God made us to know him and to love him, then it has to be the case that we can only be at peace when we find peace with our creator. That's where true and lasting contentment begins. That's where we can come to a place where we can extract the full measure of joy and satisfaction from the things in this world. See, when we come to know God, everything else in life can be rightly ordered and rightly loved, rightly loved and acknowledged as good gifts from God, things to be received with thanks. We don't need to deny our desires We don't need to deny that there is joy to be had in this world, in the experiences of this world, that these are good things from God. He's made us to enjoy them. We can love things passionately and with a deep satisfaction. I'm sure in part this is what Jesus meant when he said, I have come so that you may have life and have it to the full. God wants us to enjoy the fullness of life. That it can only happen as we get things right with God first. 
then we won't fall into the trap of expecting the things in this world to meet a need that really only God can meet. We won't end up making unreasonable demands of other people, placing our own crushing expectations on them because our loves are disordered. We can find good purpose and enjoyment in our work, but we won't become slaves to it. We can enjoy the good things of life and we can learn to be content with less. That comes from having peace with God, from being people who are secure in his love. Then we can be people who are able to honour and treasure other people around us. We can recognise their inherent dignity and worth. They are God's creatures, made in his image like us. When we understand that about them and us and our relationship with God, that's where relationships can truly flourish. When we have a God-shaped, realistic view of this world, it means we won't despair at the injustices we see around us. We'll be able to balance out that inherent goodness that we see in the world against the reality of the brokenness in this world. And we can put our trust in the one who is in control of all of that, who has far greater wisdom and knowledge and justice than we do. But we cannot find any of that through a belief in some vague notion of God or or a divine presence, if you like, because that's not a God you can actually love or know. You cannot have a relationship with that kind of God. But a God who would send his own son to mend the relationship between us and him, a God that loved us even when we did not love him, a God that would take on our humanity to suffer and die for our sake, that's a God you can love. That's a God that's worthy of your trust. That's a God worth knowing and a God worth living for. And knowing that God is where true contentment begins.